This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 269 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, and like last Tuesday's episode, this is another GABF Gold special episode where I talk to recent gold medal winners at the Great American Beer Festival about the creative technical decisions behind their winning beers. In this episode, the beers we talk about couldn't be any more different from the hazy, juicy pale ale of Y Hill and Raleigh to the uh, American-style lager of Dead Words in Orlando. But I think you'll get something both from the uh, thial focus process of Y Hill as well as how Dead Words won gold in a category historically dominated by macro-brewed light lagers. And they did it. They did it with a light lager hopped only with Vista hops. Yes, Yes, I did say that correctly. Vista hops that those that same Vista that Joe Stang and I were rubbing in the field in Yakima a few weeks ago with Eric Claire and Alex of CLS while we were getting late melon and stone fruit notes. Of course, exactly the hop you might think that you'd you know, win a light lager medal with. Anyway, both of those Q&As are worth a listen, so let's dig right in. But first, step into the modern era of brewing. AccuBrew presents a game-changing fermentation monitoring system, giving brewers unprecedented real-time insight into yeast health and activity. By simply mounting a sensor to a port, brewers get real-time information through the AccuBrew app, tracking sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity. And just one AccuBrew sensor protects every tank in the event of a glycol system failure. Get your hands on a tool that will help you deliver your best brew every batch. AccuBrew has your back because it was designed for you, the brewer, by brewers. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. Also... This episode is brought to you by CanCraft and BSG. Whether you need a full service packaging experience from design to delivery, or you just need some aluminum cans, CanCraft can do it. CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to support your business every step of the way. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com CanCraft to learn how CanCraft can help realize your brand potential. For this segment of this GABF Gold edition of the podcast, uh, I'm joined by Greg Winget uh, from Y Hill Brewery in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Good to be here. You won gold for a juicy, hazy pale ale called Luminous Beings in a category uh, sponsored by our good friends at GD, G&D Chillers. Uh, congratulations on that. Um, you do it with an, in an interesting way using uh, thiol-focused uh, yeast and fermentation. Yep. Uh, I am I, I'm excited to dig in on how you all you know, have built a process around this. Um, and it sounds to me, as we've been talking before we started here, that you are using thiol, producing yeast and, and uh, whatnot across uh, other beers in the, in the portfolio. Um, I, let's, uh, let's get started and talk about Luminous Beings um, from the kind of core as you started thinking about how to design it um, and then what kind of uh, you know, iterations that, that that has gone through. Um, where, where'd, you, where'd you start in the giant you know, creative process around building a... Uh, juicy and, and hazy pale ale. Obviously, there's some design challenges here because you're working within the constraints of a lower ABV beer, which, you know, pushing this kind of hop expression and a smaller beer brings its own challenges, finding a way to support those flavors and get them perfectly balanced in a smaller beer. Always an interesting thing, um, yeah. you know, from that creative process. Talk to me about uh, how you started building the idea for it. So, honestly, the, the creative process for this beer was... Um, we want to use Cosmic Punch in an IPA and we want to get two turns out of it. 
So um, we wanted to develop a beer that was lower ABV that we could then repitch into a higher ABV beer. Um, which honestly, a, a lot of creative decisions in production breweries are centered around stuff like that, especially at a smaller scale. Um, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Indiana, which is home of many incredible pale ales like Zombie Dust, Daisy Cutter, um, Lizard King, beers like that. So I've always been a huge, huge fan of the style. Obviously, those are more, um, I guess you'd, you'd call them like West Coast or, or I guess Midwest focused pale ales. So they're clearer but they still have a nice um juicy character to the hops um so basically i was just trying to take a concept that i was really familiar with growing up on those are the beer, some of the first beers i ever really enjoyed um and just turn it into something a little bit more modernized um so when i was talking to the other brewers here about so it's interesting that you're in the juicy hazy pale ale category but what you're talking about you know are not necessarily the the kind of heavier thicker sweeter you know kind of uh hazy ipas they're definitely that midwest kind of unfiltered yep. you know type of juicy hazy pale ale yeah and that's that's honestly our approach to every hoppy beer that we make um we we want them to be hop forward juicy drinkable um but with you know not not low low bitterness you know this this beer is about 35 40 ibus at five percent i mean i'd say it's on on honestly the higher side for some of these beers we always wanted to have that bitter back note um it's never going to be it's never going to finish sweet um, and that's the case, honestly, with all our IPAs. We never use lactose, for example, as well. Um, we do mash pretty high just to get some of that residual sugar. Um, and then obviously um, the, the yeast that we're using is helping us out a little bit on that with attenuation. Um, but yeah, you know, the goal is always to make the most drinkable beer we possibly can. So um, yeah, so here, here basically um, the thiols are there's definitely a strong element to it, but at a certain point, it's it's an accent in this beer because we aren't maximizing that thiol content in, in a way that we could because basically we're just building up that yeast to use again and then maximize the thiol content in this, the next beer. Um, but that, that kind of lends itself to this lower ABV, more drinkable experience because it doesn't have to be over the top. Some of the other thialized beers that we're making are very over to over the top with the thials sure which, sure which is really cool um but when you're repitching yeast you don't want an active dry hop you know we're a little bit more careful about how we incorporate hops into that mash bill um into the mash bill and then into the, the whirlpool and everything as well so um so it's tempting for me to say, okay, you know, this is going to be a hop focus, it's style, so it's hop focus, and we should start talking about that first. But it also, you know, I mean, as we know, when we start talking about thiols, malt is actually a pretty significant contributor to that entire, you know, th uh, thiol approach. Um, how do you then, you know, thinking about the concert that you're going to have here between hops and, you know, uh, malt and in this kind of thialized pale ale, um, how do you start building a, a kind of grist and body support for it? Sure. Um, I would say one of the most valuable things that we have on the malt side is an incredible local malt purveyor, actually several. So we're a 100% craft malt house. Um, primarily we, wow. yeah, primarily we get our grain from uh, Carolina malt house in Cleveland, North Carolina. Fantastic, 
fantastic malt. Uh, it's kind of you know, it's kind of like local breweries where you know you you always want to support local, but not every local business is great. This is an example of one that is fantastic, and we developed a relationship with them early on, and it's just really kept going. Epiphany Malt in Durham, right around the corner from us too, has some great specialty stuff. And we recently started using um, Sugar Creek Malt in Indiana, um, back close to where I used to live. So really that's a huge core part of the malt character in all of our beers. In a beer like this, um, we're really just using Pilsner malt and malted oats. Um, again, that's it just comes down to that, that drinkability. Um, it definitely contributes a lot of character. I'm not sure 100% of the science behind how the oats and Pilsner are specifically contributing to thialization. I'm sure there's something there. Sure. We've definitely noticed that in like heavier weeded beers, there seems to be more of an effect or at least a different effect. Um, but, but really the base is just this incredible Pilsner malt, these fantastic oats, uh, malted oats, not flaked as well. So you've got that nice rich, like serial character to it as just kind of a, a back note. Um, For this craft Pilsner malt, uh, you know, obviously you've brewed, I'm sure with more, uh, you know, uh, mainstream non-craft, but we shouldn't go close. Sure. Uh, it's such a weird line to write. Right, you right. know, every malt, <laughs> most of the maltsters that are selling malt, they're all good companies that all make great products, you know, and this is a decision for you all to connect to local in a way that makes sense for what you do and the way that your, your brand is connecting. Um, you know, but from, from that perspective, working with, you know, this craft malt from a, a, a local, you know, Cal uh, North Carolina maltster, um, you know, what would you say some of the differences are in the way of that expresses or you work with it versus, you know, say, uh, either environment pills or a more kind of mainstream, uh, you know, Pilsner malt. So, so obviously, um, interbrewery consistency is always a focus. Um, that's why a lot of those like larger industrial scale malt providers are fantastic for that because you know that you're getting the same product every single time. That's always a concern when you're working with a smaller grain provider. Um, this this malt house specifically, the the main malt house we use, Carolina Malt House, um, they're they're on the nodes pretty much all the time. They provide a lot of really good analyses of their products. Um, and it's really just, it comes down to, it, there's almost like a terroir to it. Like people talk about terroir and wine where we want the beer to taste like it came from here. And it's, it's almost like an indescribable quality. I, I know part of it is just like freshness as well. Because, you know, the, the, the grain that they're malting is coming from within 50 miles of their facility. So it's, it's all very close. Um, they mill it for us too and do a fantastic job milling it. So everything comes in perfectly ready, perfectly ready to go. And, and honestly, consistency across the board for, for the size of their operation has been great for us. So, um, but really it's the flavor. It's become like a house flavor for us, really. Um, there's a unique, there's a uniqueness to it. I'm always, I always love, you know, Weirman pills, of course. Um, and some other, you know, there, there are fantastic large scale malt providers out there, but there's just something about this that really clicked for me. Um, and so we just never stopped. And, and honestly, the, the price has not been an issue for us either, which is the other big challenge with, with using craft malt. 
Um, but it's very, you're reasonable. not trying to hit a price point out there on a, on a shelf. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. It, it really started out. We, we started out doing it that way because we didn't, we couldn't really afford to buy pallets of grain and, you know, paying LTL freight fees and, and everything. And these guys would just drop off whatever we needed for $50 in a van. <laughs> so it's, it's like, okay, cool. And it's pre-milled. We don't have a mill. Um, we, we don't even have mash rakes. So we don't have a lot of, Oof. yeah, yeah. Our system is, um, I, I guess, antiquated is the wrong. I like to call it vintage. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a rustic, rustic system. Um, yeah. So there's, there was just a lot about the way that all of these pieces lined up working with them that kind of has made it a no brainer to continue working with them. So sure, sure. So oats and pills are malt. You know, yep. rough percentage of those. Uh, uh, Fifteen percent malted oats. Everything else okay. is pills in this one. Yep. Cool, cool. So, uh, what is uh, what's then a, a mash regimen look like for this? You mentioned that you're mashing a little bit higher in order to uh, you know make sure you've got a little bit of, uh, of of body left to it yeah we'll mash it the higher end of medium body like medium high 155 156 um, mm -hmm. we 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 mash up um, as basically to get thiol precursors but honestly we, we mash up pretty much all of our beers now yeah um, it just helps buffer pH. I think it adds character too. That's anecdotal, but I think that it does. It's a way to saturate the beer with hot flavor without adding IBUs or without adding many. You know, maybe it's like an IBU or two, but it's not much. Sure. Um, but yeah, we generally this beer will mash up with um, typically with Taihiki, New Zealand Cascade. This batch actually we couldn't get New Zealand Cascade, so we just used regular Cascade, and apparently it turned out good. So. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. How much uh, you know? So generally, you know, how much hops that tend to be, uh, you know, into the mash, in the to, mash to produce some sort of thiol precursor that's meaningful in some way or another. In this beer, we it's only about two pounds. Um, once again, it's this one's not as thiol focused. Um, we're we're doing some. Some of the new beers we're experimenting with were we just got we just made a, made a beer last week with um, the a new thializing strain um, called Heliogazer from Omega that's supposed to be twenty times the amount of thiols as Cosmic Punch and we did nine pounds of hops in the mash and it was, so it was it was one eleven pound bag split through a whole seven barrel batch and it just smells like scuppernong jelly like it's straight up white grape. And, and it was all solids too. Like there's no, we're like, man, we, we could have dry hopped with Nelson or galaxy or something and not gotten this much tropical and, and grape character out of, out of the hops. So it's really interesting the way that works. Um, and that was just honestly kind of, we were like, let's just, we've heard that this works. So let's, let's try it out and see if it does. And, and it's really interesting to, to kind of toy with that as a, as a tool and a flavor element. Um, and luminous beings, it's, it's, you know, the balance is important. So we're not going to use as much, um, in the mash, but, but it's definitely still a key player in there. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And so 5% ABV is, is your goal. You know, what's a typical finishing gravity on this beer? Uh, I think this batch probably came out probably about, you know, 10, 12, somewhere around there, like low tens in specific gravity. Um, 
we're getting somewhere, probably somewhere between 75 to 80 percent attenuation on, on 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 this beer specifically. Sometimes a little bit higher on our more on our thialized IPAs. Yeah, so it's 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 you know dry, but it's yeah. not not you know painfully dry exactly. or anything like yep. that. Um, so we go through the mash process. Uh, you know what what's the uh, rest of the hot side look like for that? Um, you know through that kind of boil regimen. You've already got some hops in there through the mash. Um, do any first wort hopping, or uh, you know, do you push it all back into the whirlpool? So we use um, we do we use CTZ a lot in thialized beers, just because I know it has a lot of good oils for that. Um, in this particular beer, and a lot of our, I would say our more traditional IPA recipes. So some of the stuff that we've been doing, you know, a year or so ago, generally we'll do a sixty minute edition that's fairly small. So it could be. In a beer like this, it's half a pound of CTZ, so high alpha yeah. hop. And then everything else is going in the Whirlpool um, hot side. So we'll drop um, we'll drop the pH under 5, so usually about 4.8, and drop the temp down to 180 and do a 30-minute spin, 30-minute rest, and, and knock out like that. Why, uh, you know, it's so funny because, of course, this last, uh, you know, GABF Gold episode, as I was talking uh, with Precarious Beer Project, uh, they do, they're they doing a similar cool pool, you know, process on that. Uh, it, it can be, you know, obviously, especially on a vintage system like yours, you know, working through that is, can be kind of a pain. Um, it's not the easiest process to, to you know, drop temperature on a, on a kettle like that quickly um, and put it back in. You know why? What what do what do you find is the benefit from you know that lower whirlpool temperature? It's just a more aromatic saturation of of the hops. So um, it, it's really just trying to maximize the nose that we're getting from the whirlpool without increasing the bitterness. Because you know if if you on this beer we're adding you know maybe a pound per barrel in the whirlpool. On some of our other beers, it's a pound and a half or two pounds the bitterness gets out of control pretty quickly if you're you know you finish your boil at 213 degrees and if you just do a hop stand right at flame out you know maybe your temp drops to 205 by the end of your rest but it's still going to be pretty high so you're still in deep isomerization yes. territory right there and i mean even 180 or you know will still get you some isomerization and it's you know. and it's hard yeah. to calculate right like they're right. they're if you, you plug it in a beer smith at you, you say it's flame out it, it spoils for zero minutes and it tells you zero ibus but you know you're getting a lot more than that there are other calculators out there for that but it's still kind of nebulous so it's just sure how do you how do you mentally figure that for yourself Honestly, it's trial and error. So uh, we started off doing, you know, just the way that we were doing it for years at other breweries where we would just, you know, drop them at flame out, spin it. Um, now we literally have a hose that we run from the knockout loop back into the kettle, run it through the hex, drop it down to 180 degrees, sometimes lower depending on the beer, um, and then just send the hops. And it's basically, it's just been iteratively over batches. We've kind of figured out, okay, I dropped it from 210 to 200 and then from 210 to 190 and then 190 to 180. And then that was kind of the sweet spot. So you just keep liking it more and then you dropped it lower and like, exactly. Eh, maybe that was yep. a little too much. And then <laughs> yeah. we go back up. Uh, it, sure. Sure. Um, how would you, I mean, is there a quality to the bitterness outside of just the pure bitterness numbers? Is there some, you know, kind of shape or texture to the bitterness or, or you know, flavor to it um, that you find at that lower temperature level just kind of, you know, supports or meshes with the beer 
uh, you know, in a more attractive way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is a fairly soft beer. Um, I would say so, uh, when we're doing IPAs in this way, I would say the bitterness is a little bit more pronounced. But in in a pale ale like this, we wanted to just have that that little backbone of like kind of an herbaceous character, a little bit of pine maybe. This beer we're using uh, Mosaic and Motueka. Um, so nothing like too crazy on the cohumulone front other than the, C- the half pound of CTZ at the front end. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly soft bitterness, but it's just enough to be at that threshold where when you finish the sip, there's a crispness to it that kind of accentuates that relatively dry finish as well. Sure, sure. Now, does that same mosaic and motueka carry through into the dry hop, yep. or uh, do you? So, why why those two hops together? So, uh, it's funny you should ask. It, literally, our head brewer thought that it would be that it was funny that it was a, kind of a momo, like an alliteration. <laughs> and I, I was like, sure, mosaic and motueka sounds great. Let's try that. And it was just, it was again, it was just like highly scientific. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, at least you're honest about that, right? Um, you we, know, but, I mean, but, we, we use yeah. you know we, we use all tons and tons of different uh, hop varieties, and we're constantly trying to find new ones. Those are two, obviously, that we were fairly confident in. Um, those are two hops that we use all the time. You know, Mosaic, obviously, huge huge hop for everybody in the U.S. And sure, Motueka is one of my all time one of our our brewery's all time favorite hops as well. So, um, what makes it a favorite for you? It's just the the way that it expresses, especially in a beer like this, just that that really nice tropicality without being too overboard. It's it's delicate but still um, really characterful. Um, I don't know. It's it's great in blends too. Like we've made single hop Motueka beers before, and they're they're fantastic. But but it it, it really complements other fruit forward hops too. Um, and especially like I love blending New Zealand hops into uh, with American hops, um, something like mosaic, you know, on its own has a tendency to come off, you know, can be kind of diesel-y or kind of cat pee. But if you add something like Motueka to kind of balance the structure out, I, I think that really works well. Sure. And then there's a little bit of, uh, you know, and I think a little bit of that old school, new school blend a little, you know, it, it feels there's something that feels comfortable and familiar while also feeling new and fresh. Um, you know, kind of, kind of keeps it and fun. Then you add that little kiss of thigh all on there and it just kind of, the whole picture starts to come into focus a little better. Yeah. Yeah. How much, uh, you know, how much goes into the whirlpool, how much of the overall kind of, you know, hop picture. We're uh, doing a, like a pound per barrel in the whirlpool here, which is, you know, I think we're doing probably three pounds per barrel total. So yeah, about a third. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, anything, uh, you know, then I guess we'll move into, you know, talking about fermentation from there. And this is where the real, you know, cosmic, uh, you know, magic starts happening in this, this style world. Um, you know, what, uh, walk me through then that process, uh, you know, as you, as you come out of hot side and move into cold side. Sure. Um, we'll usually with, with cosmic punch, we'll usually start around, we'll pitch at like 64 and just let it free rise around 68. Um, Hmm. why that cool? it's it's just another you know something that we found works um to help develop that that character it just i i think really would i mean at the end of the day cosmic punch is basically a mutated english ale yeast strain 
And mm-hmm. that's just, you know, pitching cool on English ale strains always seems to help a little bit, um, at least in my experience. And then just letting it free rise. Help like, in what way? In terms of not being too estuary? Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah, just okay. just to create a more balanced beer. And then the free rise, you know, just to get it up into that diacetyl um, transformation territory to get to clean all that up. And then uh, when we dry hop, we'll let it go up to 72 at the highest. And just, mm-hmm. again, make sure that everything's clean by the end of it. And then we're ready to go. What does that fermentation curve typically look like? And, uh, you know, are there any points along that process where uh, you all pay extra attention to it? It's honestly, it's pretty smooth. Um, We're generally on this beer specifically because of the way it was designed to repitch. We're doing a fresh pitch on this beer pretty much every time. So we see a pretty smooth curve. Um, Really, honestly, on these beers, there's a lot of talk around when to dry hop it is i guess probably one of the most important things people talk about in in the fermenter um obviously on this one because we're repitching we're not actually actively dry hopping it so we'll we'll dry hop it usually the day after we repitch um but i mean generally it's just we don't have to really worry about the temp control because we just we pitch at 64 set it to 68 let it go up and then once we repitch we're ready to go uh go with the dry hop and let it come all the way up and then then it's then she's done so you, you crash out before you dry hop obviously if you're you know since this is a yeast generating uh, you know brew right here yeah i mean honestly we we, we typically don't need or, to oh, yeah, um, okay so yeah. you're just you're just pulling yeast off yep. without having to to crash okay yep. so it's yeah it's it's naturally flocking out and then repitch and then dry hop yep so there probably is, there probably yeah. is some biotransformation going on in there with whatever yeast is left in the tank. Um, compared to the other beers that we've used this this yeast with, it's it's relatively minimal. But it's it's again, it's just like a, an element. Sure, sure, and that is you know it is something that obviously our friends at Omega have talked about quite a bit, and oh, yeah. the content that we've we've built with them that uh, you know the biotransformation piece isn't a big focus of this. That you know those style precursors are coming, you know, like yep, you mentioned absolutely. from that mash hopping, even from the you know from the mall bill itself, yep. more so than that kind of bio thing. Not in the bio. I mean, biotransformation obviously has other benefits potentially in terms of uh, having some other positive flavor impacts, yep. you know, for, for these things too. Um, but not, not necessarily on that thiol creation yep. piece. Sure. Um, you know, so what does dry hopping then look like for you? Is there a, a method to the madness? You just do a single charge and is there, are there any techniques that you employ to kind of make sure that um, you're getting a, a good or pleasant extraction from those hops? Sure. Um, We'll and what kind of hops are, are you using? Just T ninety pellets? Or using yeah, yeah. It's, we're all, okay. all typically all T nineties. Um, it de- again, it depends on the beer. On this beer, we're doing two charges. Um, we'll do a smaller charge and you know let it let it sit for a day, drop out, and then do a, a larger charge um, hmm. 24, 48 hours later. Um, we we like to. What's the benefit of that? It's so t- to me. Um, Again, it's just saturation. So to me, adding all the hops at once, sometimes you don't extract as eff- as effectively. So if you do two separate charges, I don't know if it's surface area or, or how, how exactly this is working. This is a relatively small dry hop. So we, we we'll use this strategy a lot on like larger dry hops um, just to kind of let 
everything infuse once and then then fall out and then infuse a second time. Um, we also like to circulate CO2 through the racking arm just mm-hmm. to kind of get everything mixed up and, and well into suspension um, before, you know, before the, the char- charge one drops out and then do it again for charge two. Sure. And then how long do each of those charges sit in the tank? 24, 48 hours. Um, we've really found that uh, longer exposure times aren't tremendously helpful. Um, so yeah, usually honestly the maximum two days I would say is, is when we're going to start crashing it after that second charge. Um, and this is all at 72, uh, when you're dry. Hopping? Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll go in at, in the upper sixties. And then if it, if it rises with the hop creep, um, or needs to clean any more diastole up and, and keep fermenting and re-ferment it's yeah, it's, it's allowed to go up to 72, but sometimes it doesn't go that high. Yeah. Um, how much, how much of an issue is hop creep for you? I mean, I'm in a pale ale. I wouldn't expect it. I mean, it's not, it's not like there's a whole ton of, uh, you know, fermentable still left as you're doing that kind of thing. Um, yeah. It's, it's not a lot. bigger on some bigger beers. We've noticed, we've noticed it more in other beers. Definitely. Um, on this one, it's relatively minimal, I would say. Any other kind of, you know, approach to, to finishing the beer, uh, you know, after fermentation is, is over, is there a way that, uh, you know, wh- what do you do from there? We are extremely careful about transfers. Um, so, you know, very slow, very measured. Um, and honestly, I think a crucial part of our process, at least for packaging beer, is that we have a single head filler, um, which we bought a system. This, this is like shortly after the pandemic when we really needed a way to get packaged beer out. Um, American Canning makes this machine that's extremely affordable it's a single head filler all of us um myself and nick and owen the the other two brewers here have all worked at larger breweries with massive canning machines and and seen a lot of different levels of do and beers and this is by far the best we've seen so really what kind of do are you getting in the package we we do not have the capability to measure it <laughs> okay, we, we okay. did at the <laughs> at anecdotal do levels we, we all so we all worked at a much larger uh packaging facility together before and had a you know okay. one of those ridiculous anton par machines that does sure. all that stuff um it is completely anecdotal but i'll tell you when we package like a double ipa for example um at four months, it's still tasting way better than any other beer I've ever packaged at that, you know. So, and and we're used to at, at old jobs getting sub sub fifty DOs in the can. So we know it's good. We we, we honestly we need to make sure. you know make a friend who has a, an Antar and Par and actually check them out. But um, um, or you know, as you package, are there any? And, and I guess packaging with a one hand one head filler, it's not like this is the focus for the brewery. I mean, it sounds like on-premise is probably the primary focus in the cans. You know, packaging is really a, you know, something for a ancillary purchase for people. Yep. Absolutely. We sell almost exclusively on site. It's a brew pub. Um, Yeah. We, we, we were hesitant at first to incorporate canning into our production just because it's getting, it's a big pain in the ass. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Um, especially on a small scale, you know, we're running, but but we're only running, you know, max 15 cases at at, at a time per batch. So it's, it's really with a single head filler, we can have one operator who loads, fills and labels cans and packs off 
and you know it takes a really short amount of time and uh yeah i mean it's it's really just and then that becomes a to-go four-pack that yeah. somebody who has the beer when they're there at the brew pub can you know pick up and take home and uh yeah. you know it's it's you're raising a ticket price for your consumer but also providing uh you know an experience for them that uh, lets them keep the keep the thing going 100 percent. and we can do off-site events that require cans I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, we all love our beer and want it to be, we want to take it home in a can. We want to have a cool label on it. We want it to be its own really interesting, beautiful package that lives up to the standard of the liquid inside. It's got to look good on the gram, man. Absolutely. You know, if it doesn't look good on the gram, then did it <laughs> then even what's happen? it all for? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, one other question I had for you: Water. We haven't really talked about water, but that's another big piece, especially with uh, with you know hazy pale ale, hazy juicy pale ale like this. Um, what's your approach to water on this beer? So on this one, we're definitely favoring chloride. Um, we'll typically keep the water fairly soft, so you know somewhere around the vicinity of 100 parts per million. But you know, it's we're a little over 100 on on chloride, a little under 100 on sulfate for a beer like this. I mean, that's that's typically our approach to, to something in this this realm. Um, we definitely on other beers will boost that gypsum up quite a bit. But I mean, the, the goal is to have it be soft, but still feel the hot presence. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, d definitely favoring chloride helps with that, uh, but you still want to have a little bit of that sulfate in there as well. Sure, sure. Um, you know, as you think about the beer, tasting the beer, you know, what is, what what does the definition of that beer become? Because there's the recipe, but do you have an idea and a language for how you describe it and uh, what your goal is for the beer to taste like to an end consumer? It's a good question. So th this is a beer that's kind of taken on um, a life of its own. So we first brewed it last year intending it to not necessarily be something that we made forever and this is back when we were just you know filling crawlers um had a couple different label iterations and then decided we wanted to keep making it because we all really liked it um again for me like being from from the midwest pale ale for me has always just been like go-to daily easy drinking i've always been a huge hoppy beer fan um, but obviously when you work at a brewery, you don't always want to sit down and have like a 7% IPA. Um, I think that's why a lot of brewers gravitate towards Pilsners and stuff, which obviously we all love those beers as well. But, um, it's just a really nice, well-rounded beer. And what ended up happening is our, uh, label artist, Sadie Tench developed this really, really cool, beautiful label for it. Um, that really kind of evokes the meaning of the beer in this image. And that that's it kind of took on a, a life of its own that way where and, and we we're really focused on art here as well. We we love our labels, even though we're only selling them in house. Um, we put a lot of time and attention into that um, because ultimately beer is an art form as well. So we want the whole thing to kind of express that. Um, it's, it's hard to put into words, so that's why it's kind of expressed through art, right? <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, Greg, I appreciate you, uh, you know, talking with you on the podcast. If people want to learn more about uh, Y Hill, where do they find more about you all? Sure. You can go to uh, Y Hill, W-Y-E-H-I-L-L.com. Um, brand new, beautiful website. We're also on Instagram, um, Y Hill Brewing. 
or um, at Y Hill is our uh, restaurant, our brew pubs um, page as well. So yeah, give us a follow. Cool. Cool. Well, congratulations on a gold medal for Luminous Beings, Hazy Juicy Pale Ale. And uh, thanks for talking to me about it on the podcast. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Up next is light lager, but first, Balancing Barley and Hops is your expertise. Food-grade lubricants is theirs. When it comes to what you do, you're the expert. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, Clarion Lubricants are the experts. They'll work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your operation. To learn more, visit clarionlubricants.com slash foodgrade. Clarion Lubricants, the experts that experts trust. For this segment of the GABF Gold episode, I'm going to Orlando, Florida with Alex Ceramis, head brewer for Dead Words Brewing, who won gold in the light lager category at GABF this year. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Jamie, how are you doing? Thanks uh, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, I'm a, a big fan of Orlando. It's my hometown. Uh, in fact, I, strangely enough, here's there's a weird story about this. I am recording this remotely from New Jersey right now because that's where I flew to today. But yesterday I was in Orlando at your brewery with David, the, the founder of, of Dead Words, hanging out. We just couldn't make the timing work for a podcast episode. I was uh, super impressed, uh, made sure that we could be able to do this remotely today and make, and make sure we can get this out on the GBF Gold episode. Um, but we here are going to talk about winning gold medal for a light lager and alex you've done it in the weirdest possible way that i could i could think of um because this is an american light lager beating all the macro guys beating all you know the rest of the craft world as well um it's raw north star pills and vista hops you've using vista hops a public hop breeding hop um that is could very well be an ipa hop with soft melony characters and like you know these other types of beautiful elements to it and you've put it into a light lager. anyway it was mind-blowing when i when i heard about this and i obviously had to keep asking more questions again because this is a very hard category to win for craft brewers fighting against folks that brew light lager on mass so let's walk through you know your first recipe design process uh you know as you were thinking about building a light lager for dead words uh you know where did you start where did you you know in that kind of creative process what was your inspiration and how did you know you know start to develop uh what the recipe was going to be and then well so um one of our staple one of our flagship beers that we have on draft all the time and in can is placeholder. It's a pre-pro lager. Um, it's all riverbend malt. Um, I love using craft malt uh, companies. We recently got our craft malt certification, um, and that is 75, 25, two row in malted corn, um, and a good amount of crystal. Um, I love crystal. It's a uh, crystal from, um, from uh, Crosby. Uh, that has a, a good amount of character to it. It's got a decent bite to it. It's got that corny grainy quality. Um, and it was honestly a little bit too heavy for two friends of one of our owners who are great people who happen to also be investors in Deadwords. And I asked them what they enjoy. And it all went back to various different types of light lagers, domestic lagers. So I set out to make a beer specifically for them. Uh, and that's where Bridge was born. Um, and it was just keep it simple. Um, my whole theory on basically everything is to keep it simple, easy grain bill, easy hop bill, um, good fermentation, obviously clean yeast. Uh, and that's how bridge is born. 
So let's start then with malt, raw North Star Pills. What, what was the uh, the impetus behind that selection? Uh, at the same time, I was also doing a cold IPA. So I was um, emulating the Wayfinder approach uh, to cold IPA. So continental style malt, um, corn at the same time. So I really liked that North Star Pills. I liked the, um, the light color quality to it. Um, sure. I like that honey aspect that it has as well. My go-to super light malt has always been uh, Wireman Extra Pale Pills. A um, little bit too meaty for the style that I wanted to go for, though. Uh, so that's why I settled on North Star. Um, obviously from BSG, easy to, easy to pick up, um, relatively inexpensive, um, but it has great character to it at the same time. Um, there is a little bit of rice syrup solids, but as far as the malt build goes, it's all raw North Star pills. Um, you know, what kind of, uh, how much rice and or rice syrup solids end up in the, the overall mix? And it obviously makes sense to, to lighten it up that way. It's about 12%. Okay. So, yeah, so there's, uh, it's about, uh, 80, 81 ish North star, um, about 12 rice and then a bag of decks just to help it dry out. So about six, six uh, percent of decks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you mash in any particular way? I mean, I know that they are with North star They're you know, they're definitely trying to catch uh, some of that European Pilsner character. Uh, um, does it involve any more step mashing or anything uh, more challenging for you? Nope. Just straight one forty-eight. Yeah. Just one of course single infusion. Really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, so we have a great system PKW. Um, it has a VEC, what they call a various external calandria on the outside. So you can actually take clean wort from the bottom, uh, run it through the VEC and dump it back in on top and also heat the mash down at the same time. Um, we screwed around with it a bit in the past. Um, but this one, I just wanted to, again, keep it simple. 148 for about 90 minutes just to get a full conversion. Um, I don't have to do any extra processing. That malt itself has great laddering capabilities. So I didn't want to screw any of that up. Um, but yeah, no, just one straight single infusion mash. What, uh, then let's talk about hops, um, Vista hops. Obviously you're going to use a small amount of hops. It's, that's this beer isn't about hops, but uh, very tiny bit. Yeah. I was attracted. Uh, so, um, Crosby is probably one of my favorite farms. Um, so I usually go to Crosby just to check out flavor profiles and aroma profiles. And what I really liked is that last line in the Crosby, um, description of highly recommended for lagers and light style beers uh, because it completely goes against everything from like the Vista site, essentially, where it's all focused on heavy IPAs, double dry hop, hazy stuff. Uh, and I was like, you know what? Um, this is already a fun little experiment in itself and producing something for friends of the pub. Um, so let me try out something new. And it landed on Vista. I really like the uh, description, the Melanie characteristics, the stone fruit characteristics. Granted, I'm using it in a very light amount, but you still get a little bit in the back end. Um, the malt really definitely shines through, though. You get that honey character that is actually advertised in its description, which is really, really cool. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that uh, it almost gave it, uh, it that hop character actually almost added that little bit of corn sweetness that you might expect yeah. just from having corn in that kind of beer. But it actually came just the, in really small trace suggestive amounts at, at most uh, just from the hops itself. And I thought that was a clever kind of way to construct a beer like that. It was that little bit of white peach that I noticed that gave like that... Uh that nice summer sweetness. 
Yeah, yeah. So how do you use then? How do you use Vista Ops through the process? Uh, it's just two shots. It's uh, so it's actually a long boil. It's a hundred and twenty minute boil. Um, just rip off any type of DMS I possibly can pick up. Mm. Uh, give myself a little bit of extra time just in the brew house. Uh, but it's a shot at ninety and a shot at five. So it's on a total of nine IBU, four and four and five. Um, I like the high alpha acid. I didn't want to do any type of double up on hop. I didn't want to throw like Centennial or Bravo in or Warrior for any of that clean bitterness. I just wanted the same thing throughout. Um, again, it always goes back to simple. Um, we're a relatively new brewery. Um, have to keep it simple. Can't spend a lot. Um, that was another part of the process in creating this beer. Um, what's something that we can make that's cheap, that's going to be quality, that's going to follow the dead words uh, vibe and that people are going to dig. And it was, it was bridge. It's a simple, but, uh, very easily drinkable beer that also, uh, you know, it's enjoyable by, you know, not having to stand out, but just very small, clever hints in there yeah. that, uh, that make it more fun to drink than maybe some of your macro beers. Um, well, let's talk about fermentation then, you know, what is, what does fermentation look like, uh, you know, on that, on that cold side and obviously nine, I, there's no dry hopping in this beer. No. It's not a hop. It's not about the hops, but, but fermentation, um, you know, what kind of uh, lager yeast do you use for this? Uh, so it's B, uh, BSI Andix actually. So, uh, super clean lager, uh, uh probably one of the cleanest, easiest working loggers that I've ever messed with. Um, Love Imperial had L17 in-house for the longest time, but I picked up Andix um, uh, off a of recommendation from a friend here actually in Orlando, um, and it is fantastic. I use it for everything in-house. Um, knock out at about 50, uh, pitch a you know 1.5 basically. So we do an entire brink for um, a 15, 17-barrel batch. Uh, 50, uh, let it bring up to 52 for that lag time run at 52 for about four days until about four Play-Doh ramp it up to 58. Just let it free rise, give it a de-rest, let it finish down to about a one and a half and then fund it. It seems so simple. What it's, do you think? <laughs> uh, that it's, it's, you know, in, in the day and age where everybody is trying to throw everything into beers, the, the kitchen sink included, it's, I'm kind of going the opposite direction. Um, my history comes from Oregon. Um, I was paired right. up with a lot of the old guys in Bend. Um, and it was always simple, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. And it always kind of works in the end, in my personal opinion. Sure. Sure. What is it about that Ondex yeast, uh, you know, versus like a 3470, uh, you know, that, that you enjoy more about it? I was actually talking to BSI last week, just asking questions between Annex and L17, um, because placeholder, like I said, uh, house, um, prefer lager used L17, but I switched it over to Annex. Um, it's much more malt forward, malt focused, uh, doesn't bring out the hop, like, like say like Augustiner would, um, it's just super ridiculously clean. And for someone that loves malt, loves light beers, um, my go-to will always be and has always been rainier. I have a buddy that ships it to me from Oregon every couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I just wanted clean, super clean profile. Sure, sure. Um, you know, and of course, that's not going to produce the kind of sulfur that other loggers might be known for either. You know, you're, again, you're trying to keep it very, very clean and very, very easy yep. uh, and accessible. I yeah. wanted, I wanted the malt and the simplicity of the beer to shine. Nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then, let's talk about what you think it is 
that uh, that rose to the point of it being considered, you know, the best light lager in the in the, in the Great American Beer Festival, uh, best American style light lager in the American Beer Festival. What are what do you you know if you're looking at your process, you're looking at uh, you know the creative process through the technical process. What do you think some of those key steps were along the way that uh, that may have set it apart? I think water was probably a big one. Um, we have RO. Yeah. Uh, I strip everything down and nothing, and then we'll build it back up depending on what I'm making. Um, I love water science. That's, it's it's interesting that you say that because I think that's exactly what you know. If we look at the last winner of that category, Seismic, out in California, who we also have a whole nother uh, podcast with about their light log gold winning light logger, um, water I think was an equal focus for them. For them, they built an entire reclamation program to uh, and are uh, have highly limited water use overall water use because they're reusing all their water, but it's highly treated, stripped down, built back up, just like. Like you're talking about what what does building water up then look like for you uh and so, you're right because orlando water really honestly it's terrible it, it like really it's, it's all coming it, out of what like limestone aquifers they're not it's not very far below the ground and then there's it's, so much construction in the area that they're dosing it with chlorine so heavy so much so yeah. often that no matter i mean you'll be ripping through filters left and right um the ro you know we have a U.S. Water Systems 4000 GPM RO. It's great. Um, we use it for honestly everything: uh, process water, CIP water, um, absolutely everything. Just because our land of water is so bad. Um, but yeah, no strips it down to basically zero. Um, it's this is really um, it's heavy uh, sulfate. It's 200 ppm, and then nothing else. I want it. Uh, yeah, I just wanted focus on crisp. I wanted crispy boy. That was the big <laughs> one. I mean, yeah, in, the, in yeah. a day and age of uh, double, triple, quadruple, dry hopped IPAs with lactose and pineapple. Um, I wanted something that you could take a case of eventually, throw it on the boat, and go out and fish all day. Sure, sure. So you you have two brewing assistants, I think, or two other brewers at the brewery, or I mean, at least one that I met yeah. yesterday. Sobo. So we got uh, yeah, Sobo. Yep, he was here. Oh, was he here yesterday? Oh, he, he was watching the game. Yeah, um, yeah, Chris Sobo. Um, Saborowitz is his last name. Uh, lovingly uh, referred to as Sobo. Uh, I have a lot of people in the front of the house that also volunteer. Um, yeah, it's just a one gigantic massive team. Like I said, we're new. We're just about ten months. Um, our GM Stephanie is fantastic. Uh, she has an anthropology degree, so she really plays a critical role in uh, coming up with names and ideas. Uh, she is actually um, bringing in an author, uh, John Arthur, on Thursday, who's a, uh, a beer historian, beer archaeologist, essentially, is going to come in and hang out. Um, but yes, yeah, Sobo's in the back with me. He's been here for about four months. Great guy. Um, came from Bowiegans here in town. Um, avid homebrewer, still homebrews. Um, I remember the day that I walked into my garage when I was professionally homebrewing and said to myself, what am I doing? Um, and he still does it every weekend, crank something out. So he does a little bit of R and D for us. Uh, so he's great. Yeah. How do you, how do you, yeah. How do you, how do you build a, you know, uh, you know, from the ground up SOPs and a kind of process, you know, through the brew house, uh, working with another brewer, um, to maintain that kind of quality. And I should also, you know, paint the picture for folks walking into the brew house yesterday. It is pristine. It is incredibly clean, ev insanely clean. 
everything is in you know is in the right place and uh you know there is there is no mess anywhere um you all have a, a very finely pointed approach to maintaining the brew house and the cellar um you know and i think that that it's interesting to think that that precision may be coming through you know in all of the processes around brewing too uh i prior to me being in the brewing industry i was in the chemical industry so that is where i would say that most likely that uh real focus on keeping the facility absolutely pristine comes from because we were required to. Um, I brewed synthetic insect pheromones for mating disruptants in Oregon. That is what I did before I brewed beer. Um, that sounds very, very sexy. It was very, very, very cool. Um, it was a very interesting position, uh, learning organic chemistry from the ground up over the course of a couple months to make pheromones was, was amazing. And I took that and I applied it to beer as best as I could. And I still do, you know, there's still a lot to learn. Um, you learn something new every day, but as far as SOPs and processes and all that, um, it has to be precise and it has to be perfect because where I came from, it was people's lives could be on the line at the same time, working with various solvents all the time, doing various acid reactions, distillations, producing hydrogen, um, you have to, everything has to be meticulous, so to say, um, with Sogo though, he is fantastic. Um, he's harder on himself than we are. Uh, he's a perfectionist just like myself. So it was a great fit when he came on board. Um, he will pick up things that I will miss cause I have so many things on my plate. So he cleans up after me and it's, it's fantastic. The guy's He's worth his weight in gold, basically. Um, if I didn't know his history, I would say he had a similar history to mine. He's uh, <laughs> he's culinary, though. So he went to yeah. culinary school. He's been in fast-paced kitchens. He's had to go through the whole gauntlet of SOPs for, for cooking. Um, he takes that education and also brings it to the brewery at the same time. So we have the yeah. abomination yeah. series that he focuses on, which is great. Sure, sure. So beyond water, are there any other fine points to some of your process technique or materials handling, um, you know, that you think, uh, you know, may feed into this key of success? Uh, fermentation, always proper fermentation. Don't rush the beer. Um, I know it probably when you say sounds... proper. Yeah. What does proper mean? You know, what's uh, it, which are you do, pushing pitch rates or do, uh, do sale counts, do proper pitch rates. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, focus on the progress of fermentation. Don't let it run down too low without ramping it up at the very end to get that DRS to get a little bit of that exothermic reaction that's left in fermentation. Um, what does Just, your checking process look like on that? And, you know, I mean, oh, gra obviously gravity's daily pH daily twice a day, if need be, um, you know, for that particular beer, it's, you know, obviously if we have to come in on a Saturday or Sunday, it's just the two of us. We both live about a half hour away, but we'll do it. Um, it really is all about the beer. Um, and those were words that were spoken to me by my mentor, Larry Sador 10 years ago. It's all about the beer. Um, Far too often, people get wrapped up in the business of beer, and they don't produce the beer that they want to produce, that they're capable of producing. And as long as you focus on that, you will. Larry, so that was Crux. You worked up at, at Crux and Bend. Yep. Where did where did the career take you after that? Uh, so I went to was that your was that your first brewing, uh, professional brewing gig? That was my first brewery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, started from the ground up. I started behind the bar, and then eventually moved into the back into the cellar. Um, went to Silver Moon Brewing afterwards. Um, it had been recently purchased 
by two uh, great guys from the Bay Area, uh, Matt Barrett and James Watts. And they have since expanded it to, I think, six or seven state distribution. We built a 30-barrel Prospero uh, production facility about 25 miles north in Redmond. Um, great guys. They've built the brand up. They, I want to say, saved somewhat of a dying pub. Um, there's a full stage outside now. There's food trucks. They just, they just really did it. Um, after that, I went down to the Caribbean. Um, I wasn't, say, tired of the high desert, but I wanted water. Um, growing up in New sure. Jersey and being a beach kid, I wanted to get back to the water. So I looked up and down the East Coast, West Coast, Hawaii, and the Caribbean, and I found one at the farthest place I possibly could find one. This is in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I was there for a little bit, but I got hit by Irma and Maria, uh, and I, yeah. lost, I lost everything. Oh. So there was also really no point in staying because there was a tiny little pub that was rebuilt. It was an old chop house and brewery owned by Frank Day. Um, there was a new brewery on island that opened up called Leatherback, uh, and they control the VI now as far as craft beer, Puerto Rico, and Southern Florida. Uh, so I came back over the mainland, uh, and I was in Southwest Florida for a little bit at Big Blue Brewing in Cape Coral. Uh, family also owns a rum distillery at the same time. They decided to focus on that rum distillery, sell the brewery to another large brewery here in Florida called Big Storm. Uh, and then I went back to Oregon and I was at Cascade Lakes Brewing for a few years. Um, 30 years after I started, uh, it was bought by uh, a Ben family, the Ryan family, Andy and Bruce, father and son. Uh, and they have since taken it and fixed the name, fixed the brand. And it is now Central Oregon's only uh, non-for-profit brewery. Hmm. So yeah, my my journey is uh, is quite large. It's, it's crisscrossing it's the country, crossing uh, uh, you know small seas, and exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> hey, if you're gonna do it, do it big, right? Um, but no, I, I landed here uh, for family reasons, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sticking around for a while. It's a great opportunity. It's a great brewery. David's a great guy. Like he said, he's the visionary. He's the one who came up with it all. He's the one who came up with the breakdown for the menu. And he gives me complete freedom. And I think that is something that a lot of brewers are jealous of. It's an ambitious brewing project for Orlando. It for really Orlando. is, really is, I, especially with the Amphora, yeah. I was born and raised in Orlando, and my formative beer years all happened in Orlando. You know, back when it was Microbrew Mondays with Dollar Sierra Nevadas at the Go Lounge, which hasn't existed since the late mid to late 90s. Um, you know, and... It, you know, I, mean, I would drink beer at the mill back in the the uh, early early nineties. Uh, you know, it, it has never been a launching something that big with that kind of ambition uh, and that kind of quality is certainly something that the city has never seen before. Um, but on the same token, it has now paid off with the first JBF gold medal that the city of Orlando has seen since 1993. Um, so 19 years, it's been 19 years since any brewery in the city of Orlando bring has it, won a gold, bring it gold medal. Bring it back, man. And, uh, you know, so I think it says something that you're doing something with, uh, in a style as competitive as light lager, um, something that uh, some you know major breweries focus pretty pretty heavily on more so than that. Um, you know, any any advice you know for for smaller craft brewers uh, you know that are are brewing their own light lagers. It sounds like you know one 
nice piece of advice would be to think outside some of the the typical hops box that there are ways to skin a cat uh, more than one way to do that and that uh, you know you found some really interesting ways to create some of the character that people want in an un, uh, unorthodox you know approach to that um, but any other other thoughts for folks that are uh, out there thinking about their own oh man uh, don't be afraid to screw around um, even if you dump it you brood it uh, that was something that Larry actually said to me a long time ago um I don't know, man. It's um, it's one of those deals where don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to jump out of the box, like you said. Uh, Vista was something that I was looking at, going, now let me just let me just go back to Crystal. Crystal's like my absolute favorite, or Nugget, or entertain something that would be like, you know, oftentimes because we have like say the Resurrection series, a big part of when I brew true to specific styles, I try to put myself in the shoes of the brewer at the time and try to use maybe what was available also at the time. And this one was completely different. I just broke all my own rules really. Um, and I dug the description. I grabbed a little sample. I did a little bit of a rub and I said, why not? It just had that nice light fruity character to it that I knew that wasn't going to come out majorly, but I also said to myself, well, what if I take a portion of it and dry hop it? So it was one of those things where I had multiple ideas in my head, maybe at the same time, looking at that one particular hop. So this wasn't a calculated uh, brew for the competition kind of thing. This, uh, you know, this was this was brewed for um, friends and family. Yeah, two two specific people that played an intricate role in getting Deadwoods off the ground. It was it was for them. So you know, also um, word of advice might sound cheesy, but um, do it for love. Do it for. Do it for, you know, do it for why you do it. Don't do it for right. just to just to win, maybe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, it makes sense. Uh, thanks for joining me on this episode, uh, this little mini episode of our GABF uh, Gold podcast. Uh, Alex, if people want to learn more about Dead Words, uh, where do they find out more about Dead Words? Uh, DeadWordsBeer.com, I believe it is. Uh, we got a Facebook. we got an Instagram. Uh, great social media uh, coordinator. Um, yeah, just hop on, I would say, to Facebook or Instagram. You'll get all the updates. Um, we are connected to Untapped as well. So um, hop on Untapped. You can see the entire draft menu that we have. Um, our if hour- you're in Orlando visiting theme parks, get out of the theme yeah, parks. Yeah, get definitely. down, Get closer to downtown. Um, get into the real Orlando and check out some of uh, some of the great beer that, that's popping up uh, all around now in the city. Um, and Deadwards is clearly uh, at the helm of that movement. Um, thanks for joining me on this segment, Alex. Cheers. Thanks, uh, Jimmy. Cheers. Before we wrap this up, AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results. CanCraft Design and Aluminum Specialists are here to support your business every step of the way. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, Clarion Lubricants are the experts. As always, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, let us know that this content matters to you. Uh, And a big thanks to my very old friend Tom Mayer for loaning me their shed slash ancillary workspace to record that segment with Alex Tom. Tom's a senior editor for the Marshall Project doing important reporting on prisons in America. Uh, But I've actually known Tom since he was in journalism school at Mizzou because he wrote for my mid-90s Skazine Scottastrophe. And in fact, it was Tom who uh, first introduced me to, to his college buddy, Joe Stang, back in 2003 when the three of us collaborated on a short-lived soccer blog. Anyway, it's a small world. Well, I mean, we keep making it smaller and smaller. Thanks for the thanks for the temporary studio space, Tom. 
It was great seeing you today. We're only a couple weeks away from our best in beer episodes. Those big ones, they are some of the biggest of the year in terms of uh, the number of people that tune in and listen to them. It's always a big deal. Super fun for us to do. The issue is the printer right now. We're reading the trophies. Stay tuned for that one. Of course, we'll be back this Friday with our usual long form interview format. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.